doing? All right, there's a lot of us. I think we've reached this, uh, this state where uh, we're just going to get rid of tables. We need more seating space. So how do we feel about getting tables? Yes? Okay. Next week, no more tables, more space. That sounds great. Bring your friends. Uh, excited that you guys are here. Thanks for giving us uh, grace as we just get these first couple weeks. There's always a high learning curve. Our, um, our, our, the table walk in tonight. Who went to the table tonight? All right. Got street tacos. If you're not coming to the table, I don't know what you're doing, but you're, miss, but you're missing out for sure. Let me uh, real briefly just throw um, just my own, wait, wait, but just my first year getaway. If you're a first year student on your campus, um, if you're anything like me, I remember about two or three weeks into the school year, I felt like I had met people, but I hadn't felt like I had met my people yet. Well, yet. Um, if you're kind of feeling that like relational like, exhaustion at this point, where you're like I've just I'm kind of done meeting people, but but also maybe maybe you're feeling just discouraged, just feeling like man I feel like I've met so many people, but I don't have my people yet. Yet um, we we really want to encourage you to come to first year getaway because it really is aimed at both how you connect with the crew in a greater way, but man we really want to help you guys connect with one another. And we just figured maybe one of the best ways to do that is to give you a miserable sleeping experience and bond you more than hardship. Um, now, if you're like, why, why do they keep talking about, about like, why, uh, why so, like, not, not any sleep? Um, we don't have beds to provide you. Provide you. Uh, by the way, there are, have the spiritual gift of sleeping, sleeping anywhere, anytime. I do not have that. Um, so, so let it be known, let it be known, no one keep you from sleeping, just know that the circumstances are not conducive to it. Um, and there's something really worthwhile about embracing that. So um, we want to invite you just to join us. When was the last time that you got lost? Do you remember? I had to think about it for a little bit. Um, I mean, of course, I'm not talking about like getting into a new city and like being kind of turned around and knowing where things were. Maybe you were, maybe you've been campus if you're new to campus. But I'm not talking like I don't kind of know where I am. I'm talking like existential dread loss, like loss like I'm in, like no one may ever, may ever find me. Uh, for me, I think, I think it was probably when I was eight years old when I went to uh, the department store with my mom. And uh, you know the clothing racks that, that like go around, and, and as a kid, you can just go straight into them? Like you just go, and it's like a personal fort, you're surrounded by shirts and things like that. that. I remember going into one of those, those, my mom was, and then I come out, and she's nowhere to be found. And I was like, you, you know, red sets in, panic, my heart's pounding, pounding. I want to go look, look for her, but I'm scared that if I, if I leave the spot I'm at, she, I, like I might be living in Target forever um, type of situation. And in the days of, days of smartphone, maybe we don't get as lost anymore. Like you got Life 360 on your phone. Your parents know where you are right now. Like you're like, I've never been lost. But maybe you've even experienced this on a road trip or a vacation uh, with, uh, with your parents. If you got a dad, your dad never been lost, right? Right? Like he he and he knows where he's going. When we all all actually know, I don't think do. Um, dads tend to do these kinds of things. Well, tonight we're going to talk about what Jesus said about being lost. That's what we're going to continue in our series, Things Jesus Said, and the, the topic being the lost. Now, the question is, who are the, are the law? Who are the lost? 
Because the Bible, when the Bible speaks of the lost, ah, there I am. Um, no, Robert, Robert, a round of applause back there. They give it up, give it up for Robert. Were you lost back there, Robert? Mm-hmm. See that transition I just did? Okay, the lost. So who are the lost? The Bible's speaking about the lost. They're not talking about people who are, are lost physically. It's people who are lost spiritually. And you might be, and you might be, why, man, of all, of all the things we could talk about, these things Jesus said, why, why would we to talk about the lost in the first couple weeks? Well the, reason, well, the reason is in Luke 19, Jesus of himself, he says the Son of Man, which is one of his terms for himself, he says the Son of Man came, came to seek and to save the lost. And so if you've ever wondered what Jesus' mission is, God put it on flesh and came to earth as Christ, that's the answer. Why did God become a man and live among us? Jesus says he came to seek and to save the lost. This is what Jesus' life and ministry, his death, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, this is what it's about. Seeking and saving the lost. And so in the passage that we're going to look at tonight, Jesus is going to tell a parable about two brothers who are lost. Now, there's two ways to be lost, isn't there? You can be lost and know that you're lost, or you can be lost and not know that you're lost. Either way, you're lost. So one brother... He is lost and he knows it. And the other one is lost, but he doesn't. And so how does this ultimately connect? Well, the fact is, is that for each one of us in this room, there are, there are only two kinds of people. There are people who are lost and they know it. There are people who are lost and they don't know it. And you and I fall into one of the categories. As we listen to Jesus... We're invited to ask ourselves the question as we look at these two brothers, which brother am I? So turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, and as you're turning there, let me just briefly explain what a parable is. A parable is a type of metaphor. It's a metaphor. Metaphor. And I, since you know what a metaphor is, or is. It's a metaphor. It's often told in the form of a story, and a parable essentially is trying a spiritual reality, and it calls forth a response from the listeners. A metaphor about a spiritual reality, and it calls forth a response. So before we dive into the passage, though, let me pray for us. And let's ask and trust that God, as his word is opened, is opened he will speak, and let's ask that he gives us ears to hear. Father God, thank, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity just to, gather, just to gather with each man and woman here. Lord, you know, know where every single one of us is at. 
You know where our hearts are at right now. You now, you know is on our mind and distracting us right now. Right now. You know how we're feeling as we walk into this room. Whether we feel anxious, whether we feel we feel, you know, some buyer's remorse about even coming, perhaps I don't know. Or maybe we're excited. Maybe we're happy to be here. But God, you see every one of us. And Lord, I pray that pray that as we read your word tonight, would you speak? Would you, Holy Spirit, put your put your finger hearts and convict us where where there is sin, where there's indifference, where there's just lethargy in us, God, God. Ultimately, God, where there's lostness in us, would you put your finger on it? And God, would you give us faith to see Jesus for who he is? Would you give us the ability to know what your, your heart is as our Father? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 15, starting verse 1. Going to give us some, some context right here in verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to hop over to the parable about brothers. But verse 1 in Luke, cha- Luke chapter 15, these are the people who are around Jesus. It says there, all, says there, all collectors and sinners were approaching and listening, or, or were approaching, approaching to listen. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So in order to begin to understand, understand the parable Jesus is going to tell, we need to understand why Jesus begins to he doesn't just start, start kind of parables just for no reason. There's something we learn in this context for why he's telling it. And so we're told that there are two groups of people around Jesus, right? The, the first people are described as tax collectors and sinners. The people who were engaged in wild living. They had rejected kind of traditional moral living, and they were living openly sinful sinful. And of course, the second group of people we're told about are the, are the Pharisees and scribes, who are represented, uh, as we'll see later in the parable, as this by this by this older brother. These were religious folk, folk, people who had morally upright lives. They, they lived. We might we might say, look, they lived the right way. They were passionate about following God's word. So these were the guys that. Never missed church on Sunday. They probably were Instagramming or you know, doing their be real and showing their Devo times that they were having, their Bible. Um, they probably had a little like Christian, Christian fish in their car um, and they only ever listened to Christian radio, no doubt. And so we're told in this scene that, that the collectors and sinners were drawn near to Jesus. They wanted to be near Jesus and Jesus wanted to be near, near them. I mean, this would have, if you, we were to enter in on, on this scene, this would have been like us stepping into Chipotle and seeing Jesus having, having chips and with like, like a corrupt politician and like some girls and some guys from the local strip club. Like you just would have walked in and walked in and been, been yeah, okay. Expect that, but that's cool. So that's what it would have felt like and looked like. And this, that scene, Jesus being, being with those people, it angered the religious people. It upset them. And they raised their complaint against Jesus saying, this man, he receives sinners and he eats with them. Because in that time, in that culture, to eat with somebody, 
was a symbol of acceptance of them. You're receiving them. And so this is the situation in where Jesus tells this parable. This story is often referred to as the, the, about the lost son. Maybe your says it this way. My mind says the parable of the lost son talks about it as if, as if there's one person who's lost. But I'll tell you up front, it's, it's not one that is lost, it's two. Because the question we need to ask is, to whom is Jesus telling this parable? parable? About two audiences in the room, tax collectors and sinners and religious people. Just people. Who is he telling the parable to? The sinners or the religious people? He's telling it to the religious people. It's aimed at the second group. These, these are the ones who are grumbling against Jesus. So, before we dive into the parable, the question that you are invited to ask as we read it is which brother am I? Because the question is not, not whether you are lost. It's whether or not you know it. Unpack the story, and we'll pick things up in verse 11. Jesus' man had two sons. The young man said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. So Jesus says, a man of two sons, younger guy comes to guy comes and says, hey, hey what's going to be mine when you die? Let's give me that now. I don't know about you, uh, if I go to my parents and say that, I'm going to get laughed out of our house. Can you imagine going to your parents being like, when you die, all that stuff, all those things, like, you know, if you're Fernando, you wrecked your car, you're like, hey, daddy, hey, daddy, my, can I get that now? Uh-uh. But this son, he, he is declaring to his dad, I don't want you, I want your stuff. You're dead to me. Give me what's coming to me when you're going to die. Give it to me now. And shockingly, in the story, the father doesn't rebuke, doesn't disown his son. He actually grants the son's request and gives him his inheritance. And we're told that the son goes on and squanders it in reckless living. He pursues what he believes will bring him joy. And he finds only misery and poverty. In verse 14, as after he, this younger son, he had spent everything, a severe famine to the country, and he had nothing. And then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into, into his to feed pigs. And he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one would give him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? 
And here I am, I am dying of hunger. Get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired word workers. The younger brother in his impoverished state, he seeks employment. And we're told that he ends up on an animal farm supervising pigs and feeding them. Now, if you know anything about Jews, you, you would know that they don't have such an awesome relationship with pigs. Uh, pigs were considered, considered to be a spiritually unclean animal. So, so when you want to think about, about what the most honorable job was, was in this world, this is probably it. the lowest job possible, possible, taking whatever. He's so hungry, he's so malnourished, he's so in need that he finds himself feeding the pigs and wishing that he could eat their food. Literally, the pigs have it better than he does. And so, so the younger son, realizing he's miserable, he's lost, he resolves to repent and go back to his dad, his dad. And he seeks, seeks to be a servant, which was even, even lower than a slave at that time. He even acknowledges is that he's not only hungry and dirty, even bother trying to clean himself up. The son's request really reflects that he desires to, desires to be as more of a burden as possible. I mean, he's desperate. He's prepared to be the lowest of the low, low. And I want to pause here just for, just for a second. Because if you've ever wondered what repentance looks like, what does it look like to turn from your sin? This is it. This is a picture of, of what repentance means. There's no claims. There's no pulling out of one's resume. There's no cleaning of oneself up. There's no resolving to climb up a ladder and earn one's way back. There's no to justify yourself. It's just coming to God, the Father, with your need and relying on him for his mercy and his provision. Now, before we continue, I want to point out a couple of things about ancient Middle Eastern culture. Just two things real quick. The first one was that sons were considered to be the glory of their fathers. They were considered to be considered to be the of their fathers. For a son to leave his family the way that the way that this younger son did, that family could easily struggle to support themselves. Uh, especially when he made a claim for his inheritance the way that he did. And not only that, but such an act like that would have, been, would have brought incredible shame and grief to his father. But then here's the second thing. The second thing to appreciate about this culture in this time is that when that son resolved to go back to his father, listeners they would have known what was about to happen to the younger son as he resolved to go back to dad. They would have been anticipating something, something that was known as a kazah. They're like, oh, he's going back? He's going to try to go back to his dad? That, that brings kazazad. 
You're like, you're like what's a kazaza? Uh, that's called ancient Mid Middle Eastern cancel culture, okay? Now, you know, in our day and age, our day and age it's like we're just going to heap as much social media shame at you. Well, the ancient Middle Eastern equivalent of cancel culture, this kazazad, was essentially, uh, by the way, that word literally means cutting off. That's what that means, cutting off. So what would have happened is everyone from, one from his, this younger brother's village would have seen this guy, this guy coming and been like, uh-uh, nah, nah, kazazaza time. So here's what they would do. Social media to shame him. What, what they go do is they'll get a large pot and when they get in front of him, slip down in front of him. Zazad, you're done. You're canceled. You're not coming back. Back. They would have pronounced him as being cuff from his people, and he would have absolutely no place place in. So, so as Jesus' listeners are hearing this story, that, that's what they're anticipating. That's what the younger brother should brother should anticipating. He knew that younger son, he knew in his heart that his, his town and his had already canceled him. And yet the son still resolves to go back and try. He's ready to acknowledge his sin. Well, let's, well, let's see what happens. Verse 15. Or rather, uh, uh, verse, 20. verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. And, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, and, and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. And then bring the fat calf, that's like honey baked ham, basically, back then, Get the, get, get the honey baked ham. Let's celebrate with a feast. Because the son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost, lost is found. And so they began to they began to. Kazaza's impending. We don't actually know how Jesus intended the story to be told. I'd like to think maybe the father gets to his son before the village does. Runs out, runs out in him. Now, can I give you some more cultural background? It wasn't, wasn't so like cool in the day for like fathers to run. Apparently moving slow was like a symbol of like being shit. But there goes. That dad sees his son. Felt compassion, passion for him. Says. Hitched up his, ro his robes. Would have extended his bare legs. And he welcomes him home. There's not a... There's not an not a instance of seeing the father wanting to put any shame on his son. Rather, he embraces him, extends grace and, mer and mercy to him. And he does it all before the son's even gotten his speech out of his mouth. The falls, his servants clothe him, adore him, feed him, honor him. I mean, for the father to have asked for a robe to be put on him, on him, in formal attire, the best clothes that he had to put on him, the symbol of a ring being put back on his finger would have been a symbol of him being brought back into the family. 
It would have represented his membership in the family as it would likely have contained the family seal on it. On it. The sandals just show how, show how destitute the son is. He didn't even have shoes on his feet. And we already, and we already fattened calf. That was a big deal. And so the father had regained what was lost. Got his son back. And the father's statement that he says right there at the end is a very accurate one. He says his son was dead. And of course, he wasn't talking about physical dead, but spiritually. To be lost is to be spiritually separated from the dead. That's how the Bible talks about every one of us. That all of us are spiritually dead and lost. But to be, but to be found in right relationship with God is to be found alive. That's being found is, is being brought back into relationship with God. And so what happens when this lost, spiritually dead son is found? Is found? Celebration. Party. He wondered what God feels about you. Feels about you. you. Wondered how He feels about you in the sin that you've engaged in. Have you ever felt that maybe God loves you, but He doesn't like you? The Bible talks a lot about God's attributes. And there's only one characteristic in the Bible that God is described as being rich in. The only characteristic God is described as rich in is mercy. Mercy. Dane Ortland says it this way. God is not poor in mercy. He's rich in it. Nowhere else in the Bible is God described, described anything. The only thing he is called, is called rich in mercy. What does this mean? It means that God is something other than what we, what we nearly believe him to be. It means that the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of this of God. In his justice, God is exacting. But in his mercy, God's overwhelming. He's rich in it. And he's rich in it towards you and me. me. And so what do we in Jesus' parable? We see a picture of a father who, who is mercy. And so whether you are, you are a Christian or not, God our Father is rich in mercy. In mercy toward, and he invites every one of us to return to him, to come home, to be embraced by him. He has no intention of his heart to shame you. He wants to restore you. He wants life for you. Not the deadness I have chosen. He doesn't want you to clean yourself up 
or to clean up your act. He just wants you to come back. And he welcomes you. Where you are right now, whatever you've done, he wants you. And he'll take it upon himself to begin the work of cleaning you and I up. He loves us. But of, but of course, the story doesn't just end there. Remember, Jesus' room, and he's telling this parable to sinners and tax, tax collectors, but also religious people. And this is where the older brother enters the story. Verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he, as he came near the house, he heard music dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And then he became angry. He didn't want to go in. And so his father came out and pleaded with him. With him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could sell with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fat, the fat and kim? Son, he said to him, you're always with me, with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to see and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and is found. So we're told that this older brother hears the celebration and discovers that his brothers has come home alive. And what emotional response does his older brother have? What's the word? Anger. Outrage. He, he's, he's angry and refuses to celebrate. His re response couldn't be more dramatically different from the father. And the father, rather, we're told, he leaves the celebration to try to entreat, entreat his son in and be part of the celebration. He tries to persuade him. And notice again how the elder brother responds. He replies to his father and says, Look. Look, I've been slaving many years for you. I've never disobeyed. I went to church. I did all the right things. I didn't have sex outside of marriage. I played by your rules. And then he goes on, he says, and this one of yours doesn't even talk about him as his brother anymore. This son of yours, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you're going to throw a party for him? He's so outraged. He's so outra outraged. And his reaction demonstrates that he doesn't, he doesn't know his father's heart at all, at all. He doesn't know his father's heart at his heart at all. You remember, what we said you remember last week? Becoming a Christian isn't primarily about laying down your sins, though it is certainly 
that. Becoming a Christian is about laying down your doing. And what was the other's reaction about? All of his doing. You see, there's more than one way to be, way to be lost. You can, you can be lost and know that you're lost. Or in the case of this brother, you're lost and you don't know it. You can be lost in irreligion, like the younger brother, and this happens to every single one of us. When we lose sight of holiness, his goodness, his beauty, his truthfulness, we turn to irreligion. We try to go find life from God. And you and I, we all know what that's like. We know what irreligion is like. But it's not just the irreligious who are lost. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms that those who are religious are also lost. You see, those who can be lost in religion are like the older brother. We become like this and we're so focused on our doing that we lose sight of God's love and grace. To the point where our hearts grow so numb and so cold, we don't care about lost people, let alone our lost family coming back, Lord. And all we think about is all the things we gave up and sacrificed. You see, that older brother didn't do the things that he did out of love for his father, out of enjoyment of him. He did it to put his dad in his debt. To say, you owe me. You owe me a party. Me a party. Based on what I've done for you, you owe me. And yet this guy, this guy goes and screaming, you're going to throw it for him? He's just missed it. He's missed the whole thing. That's us too. It's so easy for the things that we do. We say we do it for God, for it just to become this cold religious activity. And it's not born out of your desire to love God. In some ways, you're just kind of trying to put him in your debt. Mistake. Grace is not opposed to effort. Meaning, grace should, should produce effort lives to serve God. Grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. You get the difference? Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And it's the very thing that the older son is enraged about. And so, which brother are you? Are you lost in religion? Or religion? Even here, the father responds again with mercy. Mercy, because he's rich in it. Son, he said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In Luke chapter 15, we skipped over two other parables that Jesus told right this one. 
but they're actually really important. And I want to really, really touch on them because they help shape how, how we understand this third one. In the first parable that Jesus is told, starting in verse 4, he tells this parable of the lost sheep. And he asks this question. He says, what man among you who has, has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 to go find the one? And when, and when he's found one, he joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders. He comes home, comes home, calls his friend and says to them, rejoice to me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, Jesus says, in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over once who repents than over 99 righteous who don't need repentance. And then he goes to another parable. And he talks about the parable of a lost coin. And he says, so what women? Which women of you? If you had 10 silver coins, if you lost one, would you, would you not sweep the house, search carefully until you find it? And when she, when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. I found, found the silver that I've lost. I, I, same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner. sinner. And so the similarities between these three parables are obvious, right? Each parable, something is lost. A sheep, a coin, a brother. And in each parable, the one who lost it, it gets it back. And each narrative ends with rejoice and celebration over the, over the lost one being returned. And the striking difference between the third parable about the two brothers and the first. You see, in the first two parables about the sheep and the coin, someone goes out and searches for what has, what has been lost. And they let anything distract them until it's found. But by the time we get to the third, thir third story, when the son is lost, we, we should expect that someone would go out and search for him but it doesn't happen. And Jesus is drawing your attention to this. He's inviting us to ask the question, who should have gone out and looked for his brother? Who should have gone out and looked for the lost son? It should have been his brother. His brother should have gone and looked for his little brother. Because this is what a true older brother would do. But you see, in the sto story, younger brother got a self-righteous Pharisee as, as an older brother. He got some, someone who also lost, but lost in religion. And as Tim Keller would say, by putting a flawed elder brother in the passage, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one. You see, the good news for, for you and I is that we have a better and true older brother. He's the very one who's telling the parable. He's the one who put on flesh and left heaven and came to earth to seek and to save younger brothers like you and me. You see, you think about the kind of, young, the kind of older brother 
that you and, you and I need. <laughs> we don't need one who's just willing to go into a far country to come and find us. We need one who's willing to leave heaven and earth and come get us. And we don't just need one who can pay our monetary debt. We need an older brother who can actually pay the debt of our sin for us. We need one who can bring us back into God's family. And we don't need to clothe us with a robe. With a robe. We need an older brother who can clothe us in righteousness. And so, so at great cost to himself, Jesus, the true and better older brother, he left God the Father in heaven to come into our world, to find us, to rescue us, to go to a cross and die for us, to rise from the dead so that you and I can be restored, so that we can be brought back, so that we can't be canceled. And so the question really is, which brother are you? Both brothers are lost. And don't any mistake about it. The older brother lives in close proximity to the father. And yet the fact is, fact is, is that the elder brother was in far from him. He didn't know the father at all. He didn't love the father. He tried. His obedience was built on trying to get from him. And the same can be true for you and me. You can get close to God. You, you can go to church. You, you can come to crew. You can have a Bible. You can go to retreats. You can sing worship songs. You can be very close, very close to God and yet still be incredibly lost. In fact, that the people who are the most lost, I think we could agree, the people who are the most are the ones who are lost and don't know it. And frequently, it's those who think themselves closest to God who are perhaps most at risk of making that mistake, thinking they're found when in fact they're lost. And yet again, the good news is, who did Jesus come to save? Lost. Jesus calls sinners to repent of their sin. And he calls religious people to repent of their religion. Men and women, do you, do you realize how precious you are, you are? Do you know how precious you are to him? He is seeking, seeking you, wants to save you. He is rich in mercy towards you. And he invites you to return. Like the younger brother, we need to realize that we're lost and we need to, re to repent and back. Not rehearsing any speech, but just, just coming and saying, I need you. But many of you, you need to identify with the older brother too. I'm curious, how real has God been to your heart this week? How real has God been to your heart this week? How, how vivid is your assurance and your certainty of his love for you? Love for you? His forgiveness towards you? Will, you? will you repent of your empty religion and rejoice all over again in what Jesus and who Jesus is for you? And finally, 
it would be <laughs> a huge miss just to kind of think of this passage as all about us. Because one, we should walk away with this passage realizing that lost people are precious to God. And what that means is that if you, you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, Jesus' heart is to seek and save the lost. Does your, heart, does your heart feel and sound and look like his? Do you care about, about lost coming to know Jesus at all? Or is walking with God in your mind just about you and him? Because here's what's going to happen. If, if you put yoke of discipleship that we talked about last week, and you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, do you know where following Jesus takes you? It takes you to lost people. It takes, takes you to the people who live next to you, the people you work with, the people who you're in class with, and way too many of us agree. We agree with the omission of reaching lost people, but we, but we don't own it. Jesus has called you and I, and I, brother and sister, he's called us to go make disciples, to take the good news of Jesus to them, to them, to invite them back. We're be like the older brother we have who left everything to come and find us. Find us. We're find others. And so because of Jesus, we repair religion we repent of our irreligious behavior. We rejoice in his love for us and going to the cross for us, dying for us and rising from the dead. And then we join our older brother in seeking and seeing the lost saved. Father, thank you that you are rich in mercy, that you love us. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would just, through your Holy Spirit, I pray that they would feel in a real way and know, if not feel it in their hearts, God, then know that they know that they know in their minds that you love them, that you died for them, that you desire nothing but good for them. Would you help us to repent right here and right now? God, I pray that you would give some of us permission to stand up and just start singing and just move past this moment. God, some of us just need it in the quiet, quiet, just listen, and maybe we need to respond to you, respond to you, and Holy Spirit, help us to respond to you in the way that you're calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen.